You may have been watching the news over this last week and have a sense of suffering, a feeling of helplessness. So there is the news here, but there's also the news abroad, and it's overwhelming, isn't it? Particularly when watching the scenes in Afghanistan, those who are on the ground, those who are making decisions, and we watch from a distance. We're not on the ground, we're not, we're not making decisions, and we have a sense of, we, we suffer a sense of helplessness in those moments, don't we? You and I don't command an army. I don't directly influence foreign policy. Uh, we can't get ourselves there right now to help, and what would we do if we could? But we can pray. We can pray to Christ who is in so control that he can even turn good out of evil. We pray to the one who prayed for his own persecutors, that they would be forgiven and have true living and the gracious God as their own Father in heaven. We can pray, and especially we can pray concerning the biggest danger that actually faces you and I in times like this. What is the biggest danger that faces you and I in suffering? Here in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, as Paul turns to the Thessalonians in his letter, he writes about the biggest danger, the ultimate danger in suffering. He writes here in verses 1 to 5, as Meg just read, you look at those first five verses, he writes here, remember, he's bearing the pain of being distanced from this church, being torn away from them in person, and not by choice, and his great desire is therefore to see them again and again, and he anguishes about this. Notice the emotion in his words in that passage we just read. And in his emotion, in his feelings, he does what he couldn't do himself, he does the next best thing, he sends Timothy. <clears throat> Paul sends Timothy, and he says, Timothy comes to you, sent by me, because I couldn't come, he comes as God's co-worker, a fellow servant in the gospel. Now, if you've got the title of God's co-worker, that would feel pretty important, but Paul doesn't give it as a title to make Timothy important, not primarily. He gives it to show that Timothy is one of us. He's God's co-worker and he's one of us. He's part of God's family, the church. The church is the household of God, a family that is precious to God. Some of us feel like we could be at distance, but God says wherever you are, you are still God's co-workers, even as you could pray for one another from a distance. And what better way to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ than the visit of a fellow brother in Christ? Proverbs 17:17, 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity. Here comes their brother in Christ, Timothy, and he goes to Thessalonica to encourage them. He gears up for gospel ministry to equip and encourage people. And so we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Paul and Silas had been to Thessalonica out of affliction at Philippi. Paul and Silas had suffered in bringing the gospel, the good news, to the church at Thessalonica. In fact, planting a church involves suffering. 
Starting a church is, is really planting the gospel in people's lives. It's, it's door knocking and meeting with people and inviting people and bringing people. And that involves a level of suffering. <clears throat> of course, we know this life has got suffering in it, hasn't it? Uh, I have friends on Instagram who, in lockdown, posting pictures of them beside their pool. It's a beautiful pool, beautiful glass of wine, all that sort of thing. And yet I know those friends also suffer in a world that suffers. And often we can try and ignore it or put it aside or just not think about it or distract ourselves or have a moment of pleasure. But the reality is life involves suffering. We live in a world of trouble, of trials, of suffering. Why? Because we live in a world damaged. And the best that world leadership can offer is damage control. Isn't it? Because no one can fix the actual problem that we have, which is human evil, which is sin. And no army can actually make things better because an army goes in and works and does the job of an army and leaves and sin is still there. And the biggest problem of sin, the consequence of sin is death and no one can fix that. But it's not just that suffering that Paul is talking about here. He's not just talking about the suffering of being in a world that's damaged, where world leaders offer damage control. He's talking about a kind of suffering that you and I face because we own the name of Christ. Suffering comes to Christians because our world rejects Christ. That's how we went to the cross. And Jesus doesn't go to the cross because he thinks that's a a great way to undertake some sort of athletic or Olympic trial himself. He doesn't do it that way. He does it because, in part, humanity has rejected the Saviour. We reject the Saviour who suffered for us, to be rescued from God's wrath against all wrong. And there are people who hate Christ, and as Jesus says, if they hate Christ, they will hate Christians. But it's even more common than we're just indifferent to Christ. And so we're indifferent to Christians. And as Paul writes, and he says, you saw this in us. You saw what happened to us. You heard from the beginning. You heard from the gospel message that was preached to you. Verse 3, we, Paul says, are destined for this. You look at verse 3. Paul writes, we came sent Timothy to encourage you and exhort you in your faith, verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are destined for this. See, when you're young like me, um, perhaps you have some hope that the next decade of my life, like we hoped 2020, when 2020 starts, that new decade, we left the teens and now we're in the 20s, the roaring 20s of our generation. The, 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 the 20s are going to be the place and time where perhaps my destiny will be fulfilled. I once had someone say to me, Russ, when you enter your 40s, that is for a man, that is the most important decade of your life. It's when you've learnt so much and you're still fit enough to produce so much and do so much, you've got to use your 40s well. And it can be easy for us to think, you know, hit my 30s or hit my 40s, I've got to do something in my life and, and, and have that all ambition fulfilled. For that's my destiny. But have a notice. Take another look. Is that true? 
Is it true and right that we are destined for us to have some grand fulfillment in life that if we don't get it, we've missed the boat? That's not what the Bible says. As we're ready for Christ's return, for us who know Christ as Lord and Saviour, we can often miss what is not in the fine print. It's not even in the T&Cs, it's in every part of the Bible, at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of the gospel, when you identify with Christ, hear this, you and I are destined to suffer. We have a suffering avoidance in our life these days, don't we? It's natural, stove is hot, take hand off. Someone wants to put pressure on me, perhaps peer pressure, or perhaps tease me, relate to me in such a way that's not helpful or harmful, and and we, we don't like suffering. I understand it, I get it. Me too. But what we need to see is, if you own the name of Christ, we are destined to suffer for that name. Now, as a church, we've been in First Peter before, so we've been in the pages of First Peter. We were in the book of Job recently, and as we went through those books, did you notice this, that Peter writes to suffering Christians. <clears throat> the book of Job speaks into a person who is suffering deeply. We've seen the sufferings of Christ this Easter on Good Friday, and every Sunday when you hear the gospel preached, that's what the gospel's about, the suffering saviour, that he who lived a perfect life that I couldn't live died for me, who is imperfect in every way. He did this for you, deserving a death and judgment. He did it for me. Now, we have seen suffering. Our church has seen suffering. Some of us are suffering even now, trials of various kinds. And there are the family of God, the worldwide church, there are brothers and sisters that are suffering all around the world, who in places like Afghanistan, where Open Doors says, and I quote, there is only a very slightly less oppressive regime than North Korea. The suffering is great. Suffering should make us reflect especially Christian suffering, especially suffering for following Christ. Suffering should make us reflect. Often it doesn't. Not for me. It can take time, can't it? Often suffering doesn't make us reflect, it makes us react, doesn't it? And I've learned much through suffering personally to know that there is a gap of difference between reaction and response. You see, reaction is when I suffer and I immediately react and the, the, the sinful rust, the one that says, I'm the boss, comes out and says, I'm going to take things in my own hands. I take the steering wheel of my life and we say, Jesus, hold my drink, I'm doing this. But that never helps me in the end. Whereas a response to suffering is reflective, thoughtful, And perhaps if we have no time to reflect in the split moment, in that split second, it is prepared. How? By reading God's Word. A book that speaks, the Bible speaks into suffering. It speaks about a suffering Savior. It prepares my heart for suffering. So when you find yourself reacting in times of suffering, whatever that hardship is, ask yourself this reflective question. Have I been hearing God speak lately? 
Have I been hearing the suffering Saviour speaking to my ear, into my mind, renewing it, moving my heart and saying, Do you see you were destined for this? Do you see you look to me who died for you in suffering? You see, suffering is an opportunity to reflect and ask this question. What is the ultimate danger in my suffering? What is the ultimate danger? There are real and manifold dangers in suffering, immediate and long-term, to be sure. The danger is as obvious as they are present. One of the dangers of suffering is we lose friendships. So for Christian suffering, uh, you become a Christian and you have some friends that you just lose. I have high school friends that we would catch up very regularly, uh, Facebook friends, and I've said this before, and one of them, a dear friend, just decided in a, in a Facebook moment to blow up at me and then defriended me, never heard from him again. Not because I was being annoying, which I can be, and not because I was being argumentative, which is possible, because I am a Christian. Perhaps we lose a job. We have some loss of social credibility in society. You don't get to speak about that because you're religious. You have faith. You're a Christian. That's the common thing that's said, isn't it? Perhaps you felt worse than that. You felt the suffering of a shunning of family. There is physical harm as well. Uh, Persecution for Christians is tragic and it's a horrible loss of life. And then there are real and present dangers that the church that belongs to Christ face because they suffer. <clears throat> but here's the question. What is the ultimate danger of suffering that the Apostle Paul is worried about here in the Bible? What is the ultimate danger of suffering? Now remember that Paul himself experienced suffering for Christ. Even now as he writes this, one of his first letters to the church, and he writes many more, he writes about suffering in many of his letters, and Paul has been on both ends of the stick of suffering, hasn't he? Paul, known by his other name, his Jewish name, Saul, Paul is his, his, his Greek name, but Paul, known by his other name, Jewish name, Saul, or his Roman name, Paul, is the same man, is the same man who was a religious terrorist, persecutor of Christians, bringing great suffering upon them for owning the name of Christ. Then when Paul is converted by Christ, he gets persecuted for owning the name of Christ. So Paul has been on both ends of that stick of suffering. He has caused it against Christians, and now he's receiving it as a Christian. So Paul, all the time he's spent in prison, and all the time he's had to reflect upon suffering, all the suffering that he has put upon Christians, and then all the suffering that he has received as a Christian, has a time to reflect. And he says, what is the ultimate danger of suffering for a Christian? Here it is in 1 Thessalonians 3, it's losing faith in Christ. The ultimate danger of Christian suffering is that it takes you away from Christ, it takes you away from his church, that can be your comfort and care, it actually brings you into distant relationship with Christ to eventually end that relationship. That is the ultimate danger of suffering. We see this in verses here in front of us. Verse 3, he writes, He sends Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. 
Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. His concern is that they're going to still have faith in Christ. That is the ultimate danger of suffering, is to lose that faith in Christ. Now, of course, Paul cared about their present well-being in suffering. He often asked people, he asked them how they're going in his letters, but his major concern is, we see in verse 5, the tempter, our great enemy Satan, who attacked Job, so because he didn't want Job to keep his trust in God, did he? So he attacked Job's with suffering. The same tempter attacks us. Do you see what your greatest threat in suffering is? It's that we would grow in distance from God, from Christ, his body, the church, we'd grow in distance. And as we sung in that song earlier, our heart would grow cold to Christ himself. Distance, it's said, makes the heart grow fonder. <clears throat> Maybe, but also distance can make the heart grow colder. And then throw in the turmoil of suffering that throws us off balance. We start to question faith in Jesus, following Jesus. Is it worth it even? And the ultimate danger, we end up saying that Jesus isn't worth it. And Paul feels this twice in those verses. He says, I can bear it no longer. And he sends Timothy. And when he sends Timothy, he then says, we're comforted by your faith and love. Here's here's Paul, elated. Verses 6 and 8. Timothy can get to Thessalonica and he gets back to Paul and he shares the good news. In fact, it's interesting here that when we read that, and so we come to verse 6, but now Timothy has come to us and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. The word good news here is the same word used in the rest of the Bible in the New Testament for gospel. In fact, interestingly, it's the only time it's used when it's not describing the gospel is here in 1 Thessalonians 3. Here is gospel, good news, you are standing firm in faith. And Paul is thankful. He's comforted. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted through your faith. Paul hears about it and is so comforted, he's so thankful that they are still trusting in Jesus. And look how invested Paul's emotions are in this in verse 7. He says that, that he describes for them his distress and affliction, but now his comfort. He says in verse 8, We now live even because you are standing fast in the Lord. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, this is living. <clears throat> he doesn't say, loving life Because it's not, now we live because you like us. That's how our world works, isn't it? We feel better just because someone likes us. It's not, now we live because you follow us on first century social media. It's not, now we live because you have had less suffering. It is because... We live because you are standing fast in the Lord and we feel like this is living, friends. When we know that Christians affirm in Christ, that's living. That is hashtag loving life. 
loving life in Christ, even in suffering. And so this comfort causes Paul to pray with thankfulness for their faith. Verses 9 and 10. Next week we're going to go deeper into this passage that comes next and look at what it means to pray for one another. Uh, We need this in lockdown all the more when we can't see each other to pray for one another. To pray is to rely upon God in everything and we'll see this next week what that means for us. Uh, The prayer of next week is the central prayer of the letter. There's three prayers. There's one at the beginning, one in the middle and one at the end. And this is the middle prayer. But for today, let's see the beauty of praying with thankfulness for people's faith. He says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day, we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Can I ask you a question? Think on your thankful moments in life. When have you been thankful? What are you thankful for and how does that flow into your prayer life? So when you're thankful, how do you express that in prayer? Paul reflects on suffering, is distressed about their suffering. Now he's thankful, not that their suffering has stopped. He's not thankful about that, although that would be a praise point, but he's thankful that they're firm in Christ in their suffering. And Paul feels this deeply. It's a joyful thankfulness. And then he prays, he asks God that he would be able to still see them in person when this lockdown of distance is over, that he may see them face to face and supply what is lacking in their faith. What could be lacking? Like, what does Paul mean, supply what is lacking in their faith? Aren't they standing fast? Yes, The more we live in this life, the the, the more season we get as a saint, the more life we experience as a Christian, we realise the more suffering we face even for being a Christian and the more we need to grow in our faith as a Christian. What is faith? It is reliance on Christ in everything. And sometimes we say, well, I trust in Jesus and I got baptised and now I'm a Christian. But here's the problem. We start to walk on in life even in the Christian life, and we stop relying on Christ in everything. Like we do some things. Oh, yes, I rely on Christ perhaps in this moment, or I rely on Christ. I do my daily devotions, and and perhaps that's a good thing. But then we do our daily devotion in the morning, but it doesn't make any difference in the afternoon. And we stop relying on Christ in everything. We need to grow in our faith. Friends, Now Jesus changes everything. Christ is a comfort in suffering and we need to grow in Christ and we can even in our suffering. How does Christ give comfort in suffering? How does he grow us in suffering? If Christ himself is our comfort, if he is the the comfort in our suffering, what is the conduit? How do we get him in our suffering? It's, It's actually seen here in the passage It's the one another. It's the church. We actually bring Christ, his word to one another, like Timothy to the Thessalonians, to to Paul, to us, coming together one another, even at distance. We can encourage one another, pray for one another. 
Discipleship is the word and prayer in Christ, and it's how we care. Every time we open the Bible, we've seen this. God is at work in his word. And that means you're not laboring in vain when you open the Bible and read it. When you encourage others to do so. Every time we pray, as Paul says, night and day, and especially when people can't see you praying in lockdown, you are not laboring in vain. When lockdown finishes and you encourage one another to uh, have those good works of stirring up one another to love and good works, as the writer of Hebrews says, to, to return to gathered worship, your labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. We are the conduit for Christ coming to us in our suffering for one another. We are here for one another. And that is the comfort in suffering. It's Christ and his church. I want to tell you a little story, but I don't tell you this story because um, this is not about me, but maybe you've experienced this too. Um, I was bullied in school. So I was bullied in school and I have uh, strong memories of being bullied in school and strong memories of being bullied on the school bus. So those two places were places of fear for me. I was bullied because, and, and you might think it's silly these days, um, but still, I still I'm conscious of it. Um, I have the way God made me. I have one ear that sticks out more than the other. It's just how I am. Um, so my dad has ears that stick out, fully stick out, and my mum doesn't. And so when I got bullied at school or on the school bus, and I'd go home, and, and, and the kids would make up songs about me. Um, they would sing as I walked on the school bus or I walked into the playground. They would start singing. Everyone would start singing, sail away, sail away, sail away. Or do I spin around on the spot when the wind blows? All that sort of stuff. And I'd say to mum, they tease me at school because I've got big ears. And, they say, and she'd say, you haven't got big ears. You've got a mummy ear and a daddy ear. And that would be kind of her way of trying to comfort me. She may be watching, I don't know. But um, here's the thing about being bullied at school for having ears like that. You can't notice it these days as much because my head has changed, shape and all sorts of things. But back then, my comfort didn't come from what I was bullied about. So my comfort didn't come from my ears. I didn't have a superpower that meant, you know, when, when the dog was caught down the well, all of a sudden they said, who can we get? Who can we get? I know, let's get the big ear boy. He'll be able to hear the dog and then we can rescue the dog and he'll save the day. You know, it wasn't that my ears, my, what they bullied me about was also my comfort. But for the Christian, here's where it is weird and wonderful. We have every comfort in the very same thing that we are suffering for, only in the name of Christ. The very thing that we might receive suffering for, for being a Christian, is the very thing that we get comfort in. It's the same thing. It's Christ. And it's even Christ's body, the church, for associating with Paul, the Thessalonians, had that suffering, for association with the church, Christ and his church. You may receive this too. What, you're a Christian? You're one of those? Are you, the church is bad, and we know about the church, and the church is horrible, and there are all sorts of horrible things. And yes, the church should own our sins, but also, we just get suffering because we're a Christian because we're part of a church. What, you're part of a reforming church? But here's the thing, friends, for us. The very thing that we suffer for is the very place of comfort. 
The world just beats us up week in and week out, tells us we're never good enough, demands from us that when you come to church, you come to receive grace. When you tune in online, you tune in to hear grace in Christ. When you see someone first put their trust in Christ, it's amazing, isn't it? You can't buy a high like that from anywhere in the world. It's otherworldly, it's supernatural. When someone first, before your eyes, says, I now believe in Jesus, and perhaps you've seen it here at church, when we've baptised people who've turned to Christ, when you see that, as Paul writes in chapter 1, where people turn to God from idols, when you see that, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's, it's praiseworthy, and we're thankful. Yet... What also comes with that feeling of seeing someone believe and be baptised or seeing someone say before your eyes, I trust in Jesus. What also comes is another feeling. And this passage is full of feelings. It comes with the kind of feeling that Paul has expressed. The feeling of this, when you look at that new believer, that new brother or sister in Christ, you look at them and feel, oh, you're going to suffer one day. You, like me, are destined to suffer for this. Perhaps it's you'll suffer because you're now a new family member in Christ and you'll, you'll suffer shunning from your own family. And perhaps you'll suffer the social stigma from your friends. Perhaps you'll just suffer the loss of career, potential promotion, peer pressure or, at worst, persecution from a country that you feel like a foreigner in because you became a Christian. But here is how, from this passage, Jesus changes everything. You see, Jesus changes our relationship with God. He saves us from wrong to now righteousness in Christ and from deserving wrath to receiving grace. And so what we ultimately need in our suffering is to trust Jesus because he is trustworthy. And especially in our suffering. Christ is our comfort. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are praying most earnestly night and day that we may see one another face to face and supply what is lacking in one another's faith. We need this, we need you, we need one another. And for today, in any and every suffering, when sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, though we sin, though we fall, though we fail, we let this comfort in suffering grow in our hearts, that we know Christ is in control. And so we thank you that it is well, it is well with my soul. We pray with faith that one day will be sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.